Next up, all the way from across the country. Are you adjusted? Yeah. I guess now you'd be waking up, so. Just yeah, okay. Up. That's Good. Right. Yeah. It's like this morning was like waking up at four in the morning for you, right? Or yeah, it was, it was, it's good though. Yeah, good. You, look, you look fresh, you look fine. Uh, yeah, so Scott is coming all the way from Arizona. Uh, he is a man who is three times my intelligence, so if you can just tone it down for us here. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. I don't know Scott as well as Natty, but I, what I do know is he's uh, got a heck of a dad. He's turned out extremely well himself. His son has came with us. He's, he's a stud basketball player as well. And, uh, their family is uh, a great family. So it's been a privilege to kind of see you guys, hear from you. I've heard from you before. Looking forward to today. So, Scott, all you, man. Thank you. Me okay? All right, just getting myself adjusted here. Well, yeah, so I, uh, I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for having me out here. And my son Brody, this is our first time in Pennsylvania, and uh, we're really enjoying it. Um, I want to talk to you guys this morning about uh, self acceptance. So um, I, I come from uh, the medicine world, and so usually in that setting, when you have meetings, you get the expert that comes up and talks about whatever subject they're going to talk about. And uh, this is not one of those kinds of talks. Um, this is one of those subjects that God has tapped me on the shoulder and said, you suck at this. And um, so that's why I want to share this with you guys, uh, because I want to just kind of walk through what I'm trying to learn and hopefully encourage you guys along the way, too. So. So that's the goal. Um, our theme verse is up here um, behind me here. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 10, and it says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So um, I'm gonna be using that PowerPoint a lot. Uh, for you guys in the back, this may feel like the eye chart test, so sorry about that. Um, we'll try to, um, I can give you a copy of the verses if we need it, but um, let's, let's pray and then let's get started. Lord Jesus, um, you tell us in your scriptures that uh, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And we just ask for your spirit here today. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this time to meet together. And we just ask for your spirit's presence to filter out everything that is said, everything that is heard, and that you would be at work in everybody's heart just to incorporate your truth into our life and to be changed to become the people that you want us to be. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for every good gift. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, uh, yeah, Dan and I were talking a little bit uh, before um, before the conference got started, just kind of about generations and, uh, you know, comparing uh, Gen Xers to millennials and things like that. Um, I grew up in the 80s, and uh, so it was kind of a different world before, um, before internet, before cell phones. Um, my absolute favorite thing about growing up at that time was Saturday morning cartoons. So I didn't get to watch a lot of TV. Um, my parents were pretty strict about that, but Saturday mornings was a different story. Uh, my dad was out playing basketball. My mom was either sleeping in or doing her Bible study. And so I would get up at like 530 in the morning and you could catch like 
probably a pretty solid three hours of just brain-rotting awesomeness before they would come in and uh, make you turn it off. And so I was a weird kid. Uh, I actually liked the commercials almost as much as the TV shows. I used to memorize a bunch of them, and uh, some of them still stick in my head. And I wanted to share a particular commercial with you guys that really stuck with me uh, all these years. And um, if you could have asked 11-year-old me what my life was going to play out like, this is how I would have answered you. So we'll see if we can get this to play. I may need to go over here to do this. Some of you guys may remember this commercial. Um, but uh, yeah, basically the story is, um, that's kind of the, the end scene, but this, this 11 year old kid, and he's saying, listen, I'm scrawny, I'm not getting in the game, I'm this skinny bench warmer, and uh, fast forward uh, to him like a year from now, and he's a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger, and he's like, yeah, don't worry, keep drinking milk, keep, keep working hard, and you're gonna, you're gonna do awesome. And fast forward a little bit further, a little bit further, and the final shot is he's with that dude, and then um, some girl comes out on his arms like, hey, Todd, I'm waiting for you, this is me, senior year. And um, that's pretty much the commercial. So um, after seeing that commercial, I was like, man, I'm that little kid, like I'm that skinny little bench warmer, but you know, there's there's hope for me. So I started drinking milk. I drank like a gallon of it uh, per week probably. And commercials lie to you guys. I hate to break this to you, but um, <laughs> my senior year is long gone and I never became anything more than a skinny bench warmer. And you know, I think the truth is that most of us never really likes exactly what we see when we look in the mirror. Um, no matter how successful we are, we've got this kind of ideal picture in our mind's eye, and it doesn't quite match up with reality. And so at my age, I know I'm maxed out. I'm at the end of the road. I, I'm, I'm not that guy at the end of the, on, on, the, on the left there. Um, 
I'm just that skinny bench warmer that's starting to get old. And you guys, you're all at different stages on that same journey. And no matter how old we are, we still all kind of have to grapple with the same basic question. And that's, can I accept the way God made me? And for me, that's, that's a tough thing to do. And I think that uh, when it comes down to it, there are four tests that God puts us through um, with the question of self-acceptance. Four tests. Okay, there we go. Um, and I've never really gotten these right. So those four tests are comparison, contentment, covetousness, and competition. So my goal for us today is to kind of talk through those four tests one at a time. And then at the very end, we'll kind of try to build ourselves back up again and kind of talk about what um, self-acceptance should look like. Okay? So that's the plan. So we're going to start with comparison. So this is the first test in self-acceptance. You know, in order to determine whether I can accept myself or not, I evaluate myself. And as I do that, I see that God has given me certain gifts and abilities, and he's given you certain gifts and abilities, and they're different than mine. And it's just natural that we're going to compare them, right? So comparison is all around us. Um, you know, we all post our vacation pictures on Instagram and compare who had the better trip. We uh, compare our class rank and see who had the better GPA. Um, at work, we have uh, performance evaluations and customer reviews. And, you know, even in sports, we have top 25 polls and fantasy football rankings. And these are all forms of comparison. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just kind of the way life is. Um, I think comparison is often a really good and very necessary thing. Um, it helps me make decisions. So if I'm going to take a new job or if I'm going to buy a car, I have to make comparisons in order to weigh my options and decide what the best path forward is. Um, how about to express gratitude? So say I get COVID and I feel like garbage and then I recover. Um, I look back and appreciate my good health uh, more than I ever could if I hadn't been sick. So. They're good and they're necessary, but comparisons can also be dangerous. So more often than not, comparing myself to other people causes me to sin. I'm either going to move towards pride if I think I compare pretty favorably, or I'm going to go to ingratitude if I don't think I match up very well. Um, 2 Corinthians 10, 12 um, is key to our understanding of comparison. So... Paul says, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. So as we read through this passage, the question that comes to my mind is, so what is Paul saying about comparison and what don't they understand? What is it that we're missing here when we make these kinds of comparisons? It seems to me that there's at least three things that we're missing, three things that we're not understanding. Um, number one is this idea of measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves with themselves. So we're using the wrong measure. Protagoras was a Greek philosopher, and he was famous for saying, man is the measure of all things. Um, I think what he means by that is that man, not God or some universal moral principle, but man, is all that matters. And all that matters is what man thinks and what man does. That's exactly what Paul is warning us against. So biblically speaking, we can't afford to do that. Ephesians 4.13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So Christ, not man, is, is the correct standard of measure. So when I measure myself to compare myself with other people, it's like arguing over who's the world's tallest midget. It just it doesn't matter. And Christ is, is the real standard. I think a second thing we don't understand when we make those kinds of comparisons is that we're trying to take credit for something that was given to us. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why did you boast as if you did not receive it? So what's being said here is, you think you're better than somebody? Did you earn that? If you didn't earn it, why are you bragging like you did? So guys, we know everything that we have is a gift. And for that reason, it's illegitimate for us to derive worth from how we compare to other people. I think a third and uh, final thing that we're missing when we make these kinds of comparison is that we're incapable of measuring the things that matter to God. 1 Samuel 16, 7 illustrates this verse. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The things that we see, they don't matter. The things that matter, we can't see. So, therefore, we don't have enough information to make a valid judgment. So stop comparing. How I look or perform compared to another person has no bearing on my relationship with God. He made me unique. He made me special. And when I compare myself to someone else, I'm denying the uniqueness with which you created me and with which he created that other person. So, despite this warning... I think the Bible does ask us to make certain comparisons. So what should we be comparing? Well, we talked earlier that comparison helps me to make decisions and to be grateful, and we kind of use some everyday examples. What does that look like biblically? Let's take gratitude. Ephesians 2, 1, and then 4 through 5 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So Paul is asking me to compare my spiritually dead state before meeting Christ to the life that I have in him now. That's the foundation for the gratitude that I owe God. How about decision-making? Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, Paul is asking me to compare these brief temporal sufferings that I experience on earth to the eternal glory that it's awaiting for me. So, if I don't make this decision, I'm never going to be able to make wise decisions. If I'm just thinking about the here and now instead of the hereafter, I'm always going to pick what's easy over what's right. So, while there are biblically legitimate reasons to compare, anytime I compare myself to someone else to make a value judgment, I'm in big trouble. So failure in the test of comparison leads to contentment. But before we go there, I just want to stop, catch my breath. Any questions or comments about comparison?
Well, let's talk about contentment. So this is the second test in self-acceptance. So once I've compared myself to other people, I decide whether I like what I find or not. And based on that comparison, I may or may not be content. The Bible talks a great deal about contentment, and it definitely portrays it as being a good thing. First uh, Timothy 6, 6 through 8, is one of the classic passages on this. But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we, can take, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. It seems like uh, Paul's kind of laying out a math equation here for us. He's saying... Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. If you take the godliness part out of it, I think it's possible for contentment to be a bad thing. So we can all kind of picture in our mind's eye some guy living in his parents' basement covered in, you know, Cheeto dust with bong water spilled everywhere, playing Xbox for, you know, a week at a time. That guy's probably really content, right? But he might be content with something outside of what God wants for him. But most of the time, my struggle was, is with a lack of contentment. I'm usually discontent because a comparison that I shouldn't have made in the first place, uh, it didn't meet my expectations. And so I want to make three observations about discontentment. Number one, whenever I feel discontent, it's a signal that my understanding of the sovereignty and goodness of God is out of focus. Um, this is a concept um, that, uh, that Matt hit on a little bit, so I'm not going to go into it too much, but um, a couple classic passages on this, um, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, preserve many people alive. So... If God is sovereign and good, I can safely be content. If either one of those things is not in place, contentment will not happen for me. So that's a truth that I really have to come to grips with. Second observation. Being discontent is a product of my perception and not a product of my actual circumstances. So I'm going to say that again. Being discontent is a product of my perception and not a product of my actual circumstances. Usually, we think the exact opposite. If you give me a lot, I'm going to be content. If I don't have enough, there's no way I can be content. The problem comes in defining what enough means. Are we going to talk about my definition, or are we talking about God's definition of enough? So... Enough is a relative term, for sure. Wealth is a relative term. Um, I won $200 in a basketball pool when I was a kid, and I thought I was the richest guy in the world. I could buy anything I wanted. Now, $200 wouldn't buy enough gas for me to drive around for more than two weeks, right? Another example, uh, a million-dollar home. That's, for a lot of people, that's a, that's a pretty good definition of success. Um, I found an article that kind of spotlighted a typical million-dollar home in each of the 50 states. Um, they looked at a home in Wooster, Pennsylvania that was like a 7,000-square-foot mansion, six bedrooms, basketball court, tennis court, pool. It was an amazing place. 
Um, that same million bucks in New York City, you guys can guess, would get you a 750 square foot studio apartment, right? So wealth is relative. And that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul's saying that he can be content in whatever circumstance he's in. It doesn't matter if he has a lot or a little. And why? Because God's sovereign and God's good. And Paul knows that God is going to take care of him. He knows that he will give him enough. That's what Paul means by he can do all things. He can do whatever God asks him to do, knowing that God's got him covered. Third observation about discontentment. It's easy to feel like discontentment is an emotion and something that's outside of my control. But the reality is, I actually decide whether I'm content or not. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, guys, we are commanded to be content. Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So God's not going to command me to do something that I have no control over. That's not to say that I couldn't use a little help, but it's, it's doable. I'm also commanded to give thanks and rejoice. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoicing and giving thanks are not exactly the same as contentment, but they're very closely related, and one tends to lead to the other. To the degree that I rejoice and give thanks, God will produce contentment in me. And just as being thankful leads to contentment, the opposite is also true. Discontentment leads to anger. So when you acknowledge that, good, that God is good in all that he does and you thank him for it, it keeps you from being constantly angry and allows you to be content. We all know people that are angry, ungrateful, discontent, and they're not really fun to be around. I don't want to be that way. And when I am, it's easy to feel like I'm the victim here. You know, everybody's out to get me. Um, it's everyone else's fault. But the truth is that the problem, it's not me. Uh, it, the, the truth of the matter is the problem is not my God. It's not my circumstances, not other people. The problem is me and my refusal to be content. So failure in the test of contentment leads to covetousness. Any questions about contentment before we go there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about two different things, and I'm going to get a little bit more into that, but, um, but that's a really good point. And so, um, yeah, God wants us to change. He wants us to become the people that he wants us to be, but that's on his terms, not, not our terms. 
And so that's an important thing to think about when you say, well, what am I content with? Dan? Yeah, I, I think um, some of those emotions of kind of feeling angry and feeling ungrateful kind of tend to bubble under the surface sometimes, and um, sometimes you're not aware of them. Um, but for me, if I'm kind of looking around and always thinking about, like, what's better? What's next? What am I going to do about this? Um, am I going to get a you know new iPhone, bigger TV, whatever? Um, those kinds of things, I think, are maybe a barometer for for those, those feelings, and what, I think what underlies those feelings is more often than not discontentment. I don't know if that helps you any, but. Always want more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how do you uh, draw between discontentment That's a good question. Um, tell you what, I'm gonna ask you to hold that question, and let's talk about covetousness, and I think that's gonna address a lot of what you, you're asking about. So if it doesn't, let me know. But that's kind of where I'm planning for us to go. So. Okay, so let's talk about covetousness. This is the third test in self-acceptance. So if I decide that I'm not content with the way God made me, I covet something different, or something better for myself. Anyone who's been to Sunday school knows that coveting is bad. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What gets tricky is when we compare coveting to desire. And desire and ambition are pretty closely related. Um, so what's the difference? Maybe not very much, honestly. Um, in Hebrew, the word for covet and desire is the same. Most of the time, in the Greek, the word is the same as well. My Bible dictionary tells me that coveting is strong or intense desire. So in one sense, this is a distinction of degree. If I want something really, really bad, it might be coveting. It also matters what the object of my desire is. So strangely enough, covet is actually used in a positive sense in the New Testament in a couple of passages, um, like Matthew 13, 17, and 1 Timothy 3, 1. So older translations like Wycliffe and Tyndale are going to use the word covet in these verses, while most modern translations are going to use desire. So when we read, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men coveted or desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Or, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he covets or aspires to do. So there's some, some grain there. From these two verses, I take it that if the object of my desire is the things of God, I'm okay. If the object of my desire are my neighbor's stuff, like back here in Exodus 20:17, then I'm probably in trouble. But 
let's set aside that idea of coveting the things of God. I, I, I'd like to do better at that. I wish I did better at that, but that's, that's a problem for another day. A big part of my struggle is dealing with desire and coveting for the things of the world. And I want to talk about how we're to handle that. And I want to make a few notes and observations about desire and coveting in general, and in that sense. Firstly, desire is not wrong. We all have desires. That's how God made us. It's not a bad thing that we have desires. It wouldn't be, I'd say, a bad thing to have ambition. I also want to note that um, our desires are never satisfied. So Proverbs 27.20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of men ever satisfied. So if you think you can fill Hades to capacity with dead people, that's how easy it is to satisfy our appetites. It's not going to happen. I get reminded of this every Thanksgiving. You know, we all look forward to the meal all week. We eat till it hurts. We pass out on the couch watching football, swear we're going to never eat again. And then a couple hours later, you know, you're wandering around in the kitchen seeing if you can find some leftovers, right? Not only are my desires never satisfied, they're often for things that aren't good for me. Um, Psalms 106.15 says, And he gave them their requests, but he sent leanness into their soul. The context of this verse is um, from Numbers 11. Um, and he's talking about the children of Israel, and they've been wandering in the wilderness. God's been feeding them manna, the bread from heaven, and he's been taking care of them, but that's not good enough. Um, they say, hey, we want meat. And they say it again, we really, really, really want meat. And they keep complaining, and God finally says, all right, you want meat? I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to come out your nostrils. And uh, that's what he does. And um, it, it's, that's kind of a scary proposition because that means that it's possible that God give, may give me what I want, but after he gives it to me, I'm going to regret it. That seems like something I really want to avoid. Um, in the wilderness, Israel sinned many times, and God judged them for it. In reference to that, First uh, Corinthians ten six says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So it's possible for the things that I want, not, not just to be dangerous, but also overtly evil. Um, so what I want is definitely not always best. To make the problem more complicated, at some point, desire, as it becomes more intense, it has a tendency to produce, produce coveting. And guys, this is a question, I think, of priorities. Um, this is a, a verse that um, Matt touched on. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So we know that um, we have appetites for these things, the things of the world. Some of them are wants. Some of our needs, um, Jesus knows that, um, but, and it's not wrong to desire them, but he expects me to make his kingdom and his righteousness my priority. And if I fail to do that, I'm committing the sin of coveting. Anytime God is not my first priority, I'm not only coveting, I'm committing idolatry. And that's a sin that God takes pretty seriously. That, that's what coveting is. Uh, Colossians 3, 5, that top verse there says, Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So God wants me to earnestly desire him. 
If I turn my desire to something else, I might as well be worshiping an idol. This is what Jesus means in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So there's only room in my heart for one first love. And it's either God or it's something else. And that something else is, by definition, an idol. You know, it's funny because I'm, I'm blind to this in my own life. I think I can be the exception to Jesus' statement. I think I can pull it off. I, I can serve him, but I can also serve success or wealth or fun or whatever it is. But in the sports world, I know what Jesus is saying is true. Do you guys know people that have like two favorite teams and they just happen to be arch rivals? So like in my part of the world, it would be, oh, I like the Arizona Wildcats and I also like the Arizona State Stun Devils. You know, here you might be like an Eagles fan and a Giants fan or something like that. It, 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 it's just, you know, they'll say, oh, well, they're, they're playing each other and I don't really care who wins. I just like them both so much. If you're a diehard sports fan, how do you react to that person? I mean, you're like, that, you're not a fan, you're a traitor, you're a faker. I don't want to watch the game with you. You don't care about my team. That's how it is with God. There's only room in my heart for one first love, and God insists that it's him. And anything short of that is coveting and idolatry. What makes this even more scary is that the line between legitimate desire and coveting is thin to invisible. I think probably most of the time when I cross over that line, I had no idea that I did it. This is in large part because it's hard to know what my motives are. Most of the time, my motives are mixed at best. If I do something good, let's take the classic good deed. Say I help a little old lady across the street. Why did I do it? Did I do it for God? Did I do it to feel like a good person? Did I do it to hear her tell me that I'm a good person? To impress the people that were watching? Maybe I lost my wallet that day and I thought she would give me a reward. Who knows, right? There could be a million reasons. Maybe all of those things are true. Scripture tells me to expect this trouble interpreting my motives. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Similarly, 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5 says, But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This issue is so murky that Paul says, no one else knows his motives and neither does he. I can't know my motives, so I'm just going to assume that they're mixed and I'm going to let the Lord deal with it. So in light of these warnings, how should I handle my desires? They're still there. I think James 4 has something to say about this. Uh, verse 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
The takeaway, I think, from this passage is that there are two reasons that I don't have what I want. Number one, kind of obvious, you didn't ask for it. Okay, that's a no-brainer. Number two, I do ask, but I ask with the wrong motives. We just mentioned my motives are mixed. There's a really good chance that there's a bad one in there somewhere. So what should I do? Well, ask God for everything I want. He knows anyway, and he wants me to ask, as a matter of fact. And you know what? I don't want to miss out on something good that God has for me because I didn't bother to ask. So ask. But if God says no, and it's very possible he might say no, I've got to be okay with it. It's highly probable that my motives were wrong to begin with and that God is doing what is best for me in refusing. So ask away, but be happy with what I get. So failure in this test of covetousness leads to competition. Anything else we should talk about in regards to covetousness? I think that's when they get the tested most, yeah. I, I, honestly, when you get what you want, I don't know that you can feel good about that either. I think it's something that we're meant to feel uneasy about and to be on guard against and to not assume that our motives are pure and right. I wish it were different, but that seems to be more realistic to assume that my motives aren't good. And I think motives are important. I think we should work to try to change our motives. We're supposed to want to do things for God. I just think we're supposed to be suspect about ourselves. Are you raising your hand? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> just adjusting your hood? Okay. Well, let's talk about competition. This is the fourth step in self-acceptance. When I covet something, I often find that you covet it too. And since we both can't have the same thing, we got to compete for it. In our culture, there's a lot of mixed messaging on competition. Some people think it's a good thing. Some people think it's a bad thing. Um, you know, we all know those, um, those little league parents that get into fights in the parking lot after the game. We all kind of roll our eyes at those participation trophy, everybody wins type scenarios. And so we're kind of looking for the middle ground. We're looking for a balance. How do we do that? Well, like everything else that we've talked about, competition can be good and it can be bad. Uh, in a good sense, um, it's meant to be fun. A lot of times it's fun. It's a great way to teach teamwork. Helps us bond with other people. I know my, the guys that I play basketball with, I have a really tight bond with. Um, it helps. It's a great way to learn discipline, to motivate us to do our best. You know, if I see someone else excelling, it makes me want to push myself to do the same, right? The sense at which can be bad, for sure, when we're talking about ruthless competition with other people for the limited resources of the world, I think we can all agree that that's not necessarily a good thing. So, biblically speaking, it seems to me like it's incredibly difficult to compete without coveting. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 4.4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after the wind. So Solomon's making a pretty broad statement here, right? Every human enterprise, everything that we do is the result of rivalry between people. And not only that, it's vanity. It's pointless. 
We compete over limited resources. There can only be one winner. Everybody else is the loser. As a Christian, how can I afford to do that? You know, Philippians 2.3 says to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than oneself. It seems like we're in a tough spot here, right? You know, despite this tension, as best I can tell, the Bible never prohibits coveting. In fact, Scripture often uses competition, excuse me, never prohibits competition. I think I misspoke there, sorry. In fact, Scripture often uses competition as a positive thing. So, Jeremiah 12, 5 says, If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? 2 Timothy 2, 5 says, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So there's that idea of striving and running a race on a course. So kind of images of competition. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 is one of the more famous passages on competition. Uh, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. As I read this passage in the context of competition, two questions come to my mind, and they're, what competition is Paul exactly talking about here, and who is he competing against? And it seems to me that Paul is talking about the race of life. In the race of life, everyone's running on their own course. It looks different for everybody. Because his course is unique, Paul is simply competing against himself. Unlike an earthly race where only one person receives the prize, he knows he, he emphasizes that point. Um, in this race, it's, Paul can win the imperishable wreath, and it has no bearing on how you and I do. We can all still win too. He's striving for excellence in his walk with Christ, and he wants to be sure that he finishes well. Comparing himself to others makes no difference because they're on a totally different track. He's only trying to please his master. If I'm being honest with myself, most of the time I'm not competing like Paul instructed me to. I'm competing because I covet winning. Since it's so difficult to compete without coveting, a logical question is, well, why doesn't God just prohibit competition in the first place? It seems like it often does more harm than good. I think for a lot of people, it probably does. I don't know the answer to that question for sure, but I guess I'd like to speculate on two possible reasons. It may be that God does not forbid competition, number one, in order to test our hope. We all compete to fulfill our hope, right? We want to get a date with a girl, or uh, close the business deal, or get a promotion, win the game, whatever it is. This goes back to our discussion on desire. Just like desire, having a temporal hope isn't sin. That's how God made us. We all hope to win. But just like our temporal desire, that hope has to be in submission to our eternal hope. We need to be competing for that imperishable wreath, not the perishable one. This is the idea of Philippians 3, 7 through 8. 
But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So, notice the language that he's using here, guys. Gain, loss, loss, value, loss, rubbish, gain. Basically, Paul's doing a cost-benefit analysis. He's just saying all that stuff that he thought was important, turns out it isn't. What is important is Jesus Christ. And that's the math that God wants me to do to put my temporal hope in the right place. Competition is great at checking us on that and letting us know when our hope is misaligned. And for that reason, I think it's really valuable. It may be that a second reason that God doesn't forbid competition is possibly to help us learn to focus on the process rather than the product. My dad taught me this truth when I was a little kid playing basketball in the backyard. Um, I know some of you guys are basketball players, but back then the ball was bigger than I was and it was like shooting a bag of cement and it was all I could do to push the ball up to the hoop. And so what do you do? You chuck it up with two hands. But my dad said, no, that's not the way. You've got to shoot it correctly with one hand with good form. And yeah, it's true that you're, the ball's not going to go in now, but uh, over time, it'll start to. So that's what it means to focus on the process and not the product. My instincts are to do the exact opposite of that. All I care about is that the ball goes in, whether it's in competition or in life in general. But my instincts are wrong. They're not scriptural. Let's look at a few passages together. Uh, the first one is Ecclesiastes 9.11. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Talent doesn't guarantee success. Winning is a matter of time and chance. If my focus is on the product, I'm guaranteed to be frustrated. Second verse, Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Casting lots is not something we do regularly, but it basically was an ancient practice of throwing dice or stones, and it was used for decision-making purposes. But basically what this is saying is that every roll of the dice, God controls the outcome. So when we go back up to Ecclesiastes 9.11 and read time and chance, we know that there's no, thing, no such thing as chance. There's just providence. Uh, a verse that Matt referenced, uh, Colossians 3.23-24, For whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So, God expects my best effort, and he rewards me on that basis, not because of what I produce. So, putting these three verses together, I conclude that I cannot control winning and losing. God does that. All I can do is steward the process to the best of my abilities. If I do that and thank God for whatever results he gives me, including the wins and the losses, this is my best chance to avoid competing in an illegitimate way. And guys, sometimes this is a really hard concept to swallow, especially if I'm losing. It's really hard to thank him for that, but it's also very freeing because I'm not responsible for the results. I don't have to carry that burden. I just need to steward the process to the best of my abilities. 
and God will take care of the rest. And guys, it is a mercy of God that he takes care of the results, because if it were up to me, I would just screw it up. So I want to leave the, the topic of competition and uh, talk about some uh, consequences of, and correction for these four tests. But before we move that direction, any questions or comments? Anything you guys want to hit on on competition or anything else that we talked about? Well, Chris, um, it's funny you should ask that. Uh, I think that, that's, that's part of the reason that this is on my radar, that I came to you guys and said this is something that I suck at. Um, is because my kids are, and Brody can attest to this, they're getting older, they're getting into club sports, and I'm trying to take them through a process that I'm terrible at. So I think step number one is to believe it yourself. If you don't believe it, they're, they're not going to have a great chance of believing it themselves. And I think step number two would probably be just working through the principles with them the same way you got there yourself. And so we do sports because it helps us learn discipline. It helps us to work hard. It's supposed to be fun. But, hey, you guys won the game. That doesn't make you any more impressive than had you lost and played a terrible game on top of it. Okay, well let's talk about the consequences and correction for this way of thinking. Um, I wanna talk about the failure of comparison, contentment, covetousness, and competition, and that's a mouthful, so from here on out, I'm just gonna to refer to it as the four C's, uh, just to make it easier on me. Getting my worth from the four C's is a losing proposition, guys. Deep down, I know that in multiple areas of my life, I'm an 11-year-old skinny bench warmer. The four seeds, they're basically just a, a defense mechanism. They, um, they let me believe that I can hide my deficiencies from you, and if I'm really good, I can hide them from myself. Problem is that no matter how talented I am, I'm gonna experience losing. God in his mercy designs life that way on purpose. You remember, time and chance overtake everybody. And when I lose, I'm going to covet what I cannot get. I'm going to become discontent with my lot in life, and I'm going to compare what I wish I were to what I actually am. I'm going to be unable to live up to my own standards, and the end result is that I'm going to fail to accept who I am. And you know what? If I've heard the gospel message and see myself failing in the Christian life, I may reject myself even more. Maybe you guys can identify with this kind of inner monologue. You know, I, man, I shouldn't have lost my temper like that. I really didn't respond to that person in love. Gosh, that was really selfish of me. I, that, was a, that was an opportunity to witness, and I, I just missed it. How can God love a sinner like me? And guys, for me, this is not just hypothetical. This is how I've lived the vast majority of my life, knowing that I don't measure up from a worldly perspective or from a biblical one. That's a problem. So, if the four C's don't work, why should we accept ourselves? 
Well, it seems like biblically there's one reason and one reason only I should accept myself. I accept myself because God accepted me. Don't worry about trying to read this. We're going to zoom in. I know that was kind of one of the smaller ones, but Hebrews 4, 10 through 16 teaches us this concept. The author is aiming to encourage me that God accepts me knowing full well who I am. So the context of this passage is about entering the rest of God. And in the first nine verses, um, the author is talking about the children of Israel experiencing God's rest by entering the promised land which they didn't do right away because they didn't believe God and they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So let's pick up in 10 through 11. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So we as believers are encouraged to enter God's rest. This time, he isn't referring to the rest of the promised land. In this context, rest just means unbroken fellowship with God. So that's our objective. Then we have uh, verse 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I told you guys this was supposed to be a passage of encouragement. I don't find these verses very encouraging at all. Why are they here? This is supposed to make me feel good. They tell me that God's able to fully see me, that I'm open and laid bare before him. I don't like that. You know what? That means that all those awful things, all those impure thoughts that go through my head on a daily basis that I'm ashamed are even there, he sees those things. Imagine if your thoughts from the last week were projected up here on this screen for everybody to see. Would you be happy about that? I mean, that would be absolutely mortifying, right? Remember, we said that the four C's are about hiding who I really am. I may be able to fool you guys, but I can't fool God. But the encouraging part comes because even though he knows what I'm really like, he still accepts me. I say, gosh, God, you don't know how awful I am. God says, Scott, you don't know the half of it, but I still accept you. Verses 14 through 16 are going to go through three reasons why we can be reassured, even though Christ sees us as we truly are. So, let's read verse 14 first. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So, reason number one to be reassured, Jesus is our high priest. A priest probably doesn't seem like much to you and I, but in modern terms... He's our defense attorney, and he just happens to be the best there is. Verse 15, reason number two. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. So not only do we have the best defense attorney, but he's sympathetic to us. He knows all the dirt, and he's still on our side. And he's sympathetic because whatever we're facing, he's been there too. He's been tempted just like we have, only without sin. 
Reason number three. This is my favorite one. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So through Jesus, we have access to the throne room of God. In the ancient world, the only person who could draw near with confidence to the throne was the king's firstborn son, the heir. Anybody else who came into the king's throne room uninvited was executed. If you guys remember the story of Esther, you remember what a big deal this was. She had to go before the king to plead for the lives of the Jewish people, and she went uninvited, and she was scared to death, and she had good reason to be scared. Now, God delivered her, but she went into that throne room terrified. Through Jesus, we're able to enter the throne room of God with confidence, with like a VIP pass, basically. And guys, when I consider you know, verse 12 and 13, that God knows the wretched man that I am, the fact that he even lets me in at all is staggering. Much less as a VIP. Much less with the confidence of a son. Notice the phrase throne of grace. So God's acceptance of me, knowing full well how flawed I am, is a product of grace. Without understanding grace, I'm never going to be able to accept myself. And I'll never become the person that God wants me to be. Let's, let's look at the example of Paul. We see self-acceptance and grace illustrated in his life. If you remember, um, his original name was Saul. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He was a young up-and-comer in the Jewish community. He was very active in persecuting the early church. And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it was at that time that everything changed. He changed his name to Paul. Um, Jesus used him to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. When we read back in Philippians 3, 4 through 6, we kind of get Saul's worldly resume. Philippians 3, 4 through 6 says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So, in the Jewish culture, Saul was a great man. He checked every box there was. And he was a Pharisee. You guys remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? He had a lot of not great things to say about them. Matthew 23, 27-28 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside, they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. This was definitely true of Saul. His resume was just external stuff. Inside, he knew he was dead. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Hey, listen, I know I'm the chief sinner. I'm the foremost sinner of all. So, only through grace, only through the grace of God, could Paul accept himself. Let's look back at our theme verse, 1 Corinthians 15.10. This time, I kind of want to take a running start here, so we're going to get some context verses. And as we read through verses 4 through 8 at the beginning, Paul is basically outlining um, the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. And he seems to be kind of listing the chronology but there also seems to be some kind of rank here, so we'll kind of walk through these together. 
and that he, being Jesus, was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. And then, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So, basically, Paul's saying, I'm the run of the litter. And in verse 9, Paul says, he deserved to be the run of the litter. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So, he's the least of apostles, despite all the great stuff he did as a Pharisee, because he persecuted the church. It just kind of seems like Paul could never forgive himself for that. But in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So, in spite of all of this, through God's grace, Paul was able to accept what he was. And God's grace wasn't in vain. Paul labored. And God used him to write the majority of the New Testament and to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. But it wasn't Paul's power, it was God's. So this transformation of Saul, the whitewashed tomb with a great resume, to Paul, who nothing but a product of God's grace, that transformation should give me hope. If God can change him, maybe he can change me. But that change can only take place if I accept myself as I am. Yeah, it may seem kind of counterintuitive. It's like saying that you have to, in order to move forward, you have to stand still. But that change that I so desperately want to happen, it has to be on God's terms and not mine. I have to accept what I am now, and then God will begin to change me. I want to look at three changes in particular that self-acceptance is meant to produce. The first change, I think, is that self-acceptance is designed to produce in me this combination of both humility and security. Proud people are insecure. They've got something to prove. They're not content with who they are, and they're trying to show the world that they are who they want to be. As servants of Christ, we've got nothing to prove to God, to others, or ourselves. We're important because the creator of the universe declares us to be, plus nothing. Despite all my deficiencies, I can rest secure in the fact that he declares me to be of worth, and I'm humbled because it had nothing to do with me. Chris used this verse already. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not as though the works, so that no one may boast. So, said another way, Pride is related to insecurity because worth is derived from what I do. And what happens if I can't perform anymore? Humility is linked to security because worth is derived from what God does. And what could be more secure than that? Second change I want to look at is that self-acceptance allows me to properly approach my strengths and weaknesses. My natural posture, guys, is to flaunt my strengths and to hide my weaknesses. I also like to use my strengths to console myself about my weaknesses and make me feel better. If my spiritual head is screwed on straight, I'll recognize that my strengths are wonderful gifts that I can use in serving other people. I don't have to use them to meet my own needs because God's going to meet them for me. 
Instead, I can be free to use them to serve others. I think my weaknesses are even more important than that. That's where I get a chance to see the power of God in my life. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 speaks to this. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does Paul mean by power is perfected in weakness? Guys, we know God's power is active all the time. I can't so much as go to the bathroom unless he gives me the ability to do it. But in areas where I can do things on my own, so to speak, I don't see his power. I'm blind to it. So miracles happen in areas not where I'm strong, but instead where I'm weak and dependent on God. It's the blind man who sees. It's the deaf man who hears. The lame man who walks. That's where we see God's power. And God very well may ask me to do things that expose the weaknesses in my life. If I can't accept myself, I'm going to hide from those things. Let's look at Exodus 4, 10 through 12. Um, this is the tail end of uh, God's dialogue with Moses as he appears to him in the burning bush. And God has laid down this call to Moses to deliver Israel um, out of slavery to Egypt. And uh, this is the conversation. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So basically Moses is saying, God, I can't do it. You picked the wrong guy. You know the way you made me. You know I, I can't handle this. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf, or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God's response is, Moses, I know what you've got. I made you that way. Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you were to say. So Moses' natural reaction to God's call to ministry was to try to hide his weakness. God, instead, put that weakness front and center, and he focused Moses' ministry there. It's entirely possible that God may ask you and I to take risks in the ministry in areas where we are weak. And if we don't accept ourselves, we're going to miss out. The issue is not, what can I do, but what can God do? And he can do anything, right? My goal has to be to do what he wants by his power. Too often I'm trying to do what I want by my power. Third change I want to look at. Accepting myself is the only thing that will allow me to accept other people. We've talked, guys, how keenly aware I am of my own faults. I notice other people's faults, too. I've found that the, the best way to take my mind off my own problems is to focus on other people's faults, because let's be honest, their problems are pretty bad. If I can't accept myself, then I become insecure. I call attention to your faults, and that makes me feel better about myself. We as Christians, guys, don't have the luxury to do that. Romans 15.7 says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Turns out that 
you're accepted by the same mechanism that I am. God invites me to the throne of grace, and he invites you too. And since he's accepted you, I've got to do business with that. I can't have a standard higher than God's. How dare I suggest that my standards are higher than his? That's insanity. So the fact that God accepts both you and me, it places some demands on us, and we have to follow suit. So since God accepts me, I have to accept me. If God accepts you, I have to accept you. And since God accepts me, you have to accept me. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that we're supposed to ignore each other's sins. There are passages in Scripture that teach us how we're called to deal with that. Um, my intent is not to get into those. What I am trying to say is that God sets the standard. I'm in no position to make my own standard. Passages like Matthew 7, 2 warn us against that. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So, if I try to make a standard higher than God's, he's going to turn around and use it on me. And guys, I've got trouble enough as it is. I can't afford that. So, while it's a huge relief that God accepts me, it comes with an obligation. Because he accepts me, I'm therefore obligated to accept both myself and other people. And guys, as Chris was talking about here at the beginning, God is in the people business. Jesus died for people. I'm never going to be able to love people the way I'm called to if I can't accept myself. So, uh, wrap up our time together just by leaving you guys with one final verse. It's Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. That word workmanship, the Greek word is poema. It's all the Greek I know, but this is the root from which we get the word poem. This verse is teaching us that God is an artist. He's a poet. He's a master craftsman. And we, believe it or not, were his art. So all those quirks about myself that I can't stand, they're intentional. All those things I wish were just a little bit different, they were made by the master artist with the artist's touch. And when I resent the way that God made me, I'm saying to the one who made the stars and the galaxies, who made the DNA and the inner workings of a cell, who made the Grand Canyon and the oceans, every species of animal that you can imagine, I'm saying to him, you know, I, I think I know a little bit more about art than you do. Let me tell you where you screwed up. Guys, this doesn't mean that God isn't going to change me. I sure hope he's going to sanctify me and get rid of my sin. But my goal has got to be to be his masterpiece, not the way that I think I should be. That's all I got for you. Thank you, guys. Any questions or loose ends or otherwise I'll sit down. Comparison on demand, right? It's right there in your face. So I think it makes it a higher mountain to climb just because, and what you put on social media may not be reality too. We try to idealize it and make it look as attractive as possible. And so 
I think that makes the challenge of comparison all that much more difficult. And I think that makes it that much more important for us to be sober and realistic and understand what kinds of comparisons we should make and what kinds of comparisons are out of bounds for us to make. That's a big challenge though. That leads to my question. Um, so are we inherently created good or are we inherently created evil by original sin? I think we're inherently fallen. I think God made us in an unusual way. We have mortal bodies and eternal souls. Just kind of a weird way to make a person, right? Why wouldn't you make everything eternal if that's what, if that's what the plan is? But when it seems that, you know, Hebrews 4.3 says God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. That means that Jesus dying on the cross for us was not plan B. That was not an escape clause. That was the plan all along. And that also means that us living with an eternal soul in a fallen body with sin was the plan all along. And the purpose of that was to glorify Jesus Christ. So what our life is about is killing that sin, dying to ourselves, and trying to prepare ourselves for an eternity with God, taking those immortal souls and understanding the decisions that I make in the here and now are going to last throughout eternity. They have consequences. Any other questions? All right. Thanks, guys.